Welcome back to Side Quests, episode 43, Final Fantasy VII, 27. This time we've got the recording started. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Good to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be back uh, this fine Sunday afternoon. How's it going? It's going well. It is a fine day. It's a little cloudy out here. I haven't had a chance to be outside very much today, which I'm pretty irritated about for many reasons, as you know from the pre-show. In any case, we need to talk Final Fantasy while we're here today. I haven't had any chance either to play the game at all because of the, um, the ebb and flow of life, as we should say. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself at the beginning of Disc 3 um, sitting with nostalgia and not moving forward like, like Odysseus at Ogygia. We're crying on the beach, uh, held back by a woman, back from his destiny. And so there it is. And in any, any case, I, I'm not like him in every respect, except for the fact that I'm not moving forward. Though that should be happening again soon, maybe even after this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so, well, well yeah, go on. Uh, given that he's rescued uh, from that, by a by a divine intervention um is it sort of a matter of of having enough uh help from outside that gets you out of nostalgia or is it something that you can tackle sort of within yourself i I guess it's a way of it depends on the way you interpret that divine messenger right um what do you think it is is it is it a matter of getting access to some new information that's coming in from outside or is it a matter of re configuring what's already in you to sort of get you moving again past nostalgia? Yeah, that's an interesting question because when I teach the Odyssey, I essentially teach the Olympian gods are representations of the divine order and that Athena is the sort of fleeting mental capacity of a human. And that's why she loves Odysseus because what that means is that he is the person that uses his mind most. And in fact, at the end of Book 13. And, you know, this is all throughout the Odyssey that he is the person who is awake and conscious. And in fact, when he is literally not conscious, that is generally when bad things happen, uh, particularly with the Iolus Bag of Winds episode and the Eurylochus convincing men to eat the Kettle of the Sun episode. Both times he's asleep. He's also asleep when he takes a Phaikian ship back to Ithaca, interestingly enough. And when he wakes up, he doesn't recognize his surroundings. But two things that Athena says to him are, you are the best storyteller that exists and uh, you are, both of us know sharp practice and it is because you keep your head that I, I love you so much, which means that, which I, I suggest that she, like Beatrice to Dante, is his mind and is the mind in man, in man and is the mind that all men have access to insofar as they are willing to use it in order to understand the situation. And so she is the one who, who parlays with Zeus and has Zeus send Hermes down, who has a significant role in the Odyssey. Hermes is also the, I believe, great-great-grandfather on the side, uh, uh, on Penelope, or excuse me, on um, Anticlea's side, on the mother's side of Odysseus's um, parentage. His, his grandfather, Autolycus, I believe, is the son of Hermes, and that's why he has a great thieving, conniving ability. And so... The idea could be that this, this, that this um, hermetic symbol is a thought sent down by the mind that just occurs to Odysseus. And so whether it is an external event or an internal event, I imagine is less important than whether one gets the appropriate message from the moment. And so, um, well, you know, let me just pivot very quickly because I think that is my answer to what you just said there. Um, but in this moment of ending, just because we lost so much of our recording last time, and we talked a little bit about beginnings and endings, I'm, I'm already starting to realize everything I've lost in playing through this game so quickly, and um, frankly, in such a, such a utilitarian way. I've spent very little time exploring and really just loving the game. Each time I've played it, I've, only, I've been on the clock. I've only had something like an hour to play it, which is, you know, not enough time to really lose yourself or immerse yourself in an environment. And though, of course, I, I make the pragmatic claim that as an adult now I have many responsibilities, which is true. Also, you know, of course, being a full-time teacher. Um, but uh, I do feel like I've been missing out the entire time and coming to the end, it's really become clearer. Instead of being able to sort of use the game and my various duties as an excuse for what I've been missing all along, 
I'm now confronted with sort of nostalgic feelings about talking to Vince at the beginning of this game, just even the music in in Midgar when you're first there, and just sort of the coming coming to first explore a new world. And um, fo it's like I find myself wanting to play through the game again. Uh, do you have any feelings like that? You've played the game a little bit differently from me. I know that you've definitely been uh, getting a little more out of it and into it. I, I still haven't even raced any chocobos. You have golden chocobos and knights of the round. Uh, you're far more accomplished than I am. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, if that's the measure of accomplishment, I guess we'd have to say that Vince far outstripped both of us because uh, I think the point at which he kind of quit talking about the game was the point at which he got so sucked into um, racing chocobos and master mastering his uh, all material and selling that for buku bucks. Uh, so I, I don't know about all that, but yeah, I, I feel the same way that nostalgia for the game has an interesting kind of combination or, or dual nature to it, where on the one hand, it's nostalgia for something that you're familiar with, right? Like the beginning of the game, which is so memorable and so powerful and moving. Um, on the other hand, it's also kind of this, this placeholder for something that you don't know quite what it is, but you have this kind of intimation. Um, but maybe it's something that you, you missed out on, right? That sense of having missed out on something which is receding even as you reach for it, um, whether it be in the past, whether it be in some kind of numinous sphere to which art and play seem to give us access at times. At any rate, it's this kind of um, yearning, you know, for, for that which you can imagine and, and can't quite realize. And, uh, and I think that video games, certain games that is, you know, have a particularly powerful kind of um, uh, representation of that, not just, you know, in terms of the story, but in terms of the form itself, like it, it tracks your time in the game. You, you can see how long you're playing because the, the clock is always ticking on it. And you can go back to some parts of the game, but to others, you can't return. You know, the sector seven is crushed. You cannot go back there <laughs> once it's under, uh, under the plate. Um, and you know, you you physically change discs at certain points. Things that you could do on disc one, you can't do on disc two, and things you could do on disc two, you can't do on disc three. So th there's this kind of um, finality to things, belied by you know the fact you can always reset the game, you can always start a new game, um, and and it's just not going to be quite the same, right? Because you're not quite the same person you were. You had different experiences both in and outside the game. Uh, but it's just a, it's a really interesting thing to to have gotten to experience this with you and, and Vince while he was with us, you know, to get to talk it through again. Um, I think it's very valuable and people who do like these games a lot, I think can get a lot out of, you know, listening back to some of these conversations, like as they're playing again or, you know, just musing on things. I, I do hope that someone out there is getting something out of this, but at any rate, I, I feel that I have. So, so thanks again. Absolutely, and thank you to you. And just something we focused on last time that I think was lost to the nether regions of not recording while we were speaking to each other was sort of the difference between going point by point and activity by activity and goal by goal in the game and also sort of immersing oneself in the world and just enjoying being the character that you are, Cloud, in the team you have and interacting with them. And even though, you know, they have sort of fixed responses and the world is far more simple than the actual world, that seems to be part of the appeal because the world is simpler and people play their roles fairly, you know, straightforwardly and perfectly, though, of course, we've found dark backstories to almost every single character at this point, including our own. Uh, there's something about just being in the video game world, the simulated world that is, uh, I don't know, I don't know. It's, it, it is itself an answer to nostalgia. It is itself like a home or like a fairy tale home, like a perfect home. Um, I, I would hesitate to call it a gingerbread home. I think for some people to become addicted or fetishize a game, it can very much be a gingerbread home because, of course, they're losing their time and their potential while they, you know, spend all their time playing games and not doing other things. You know, there is an opportunity cost associated with the act of playing a video game. 
But on the other hand, there is something um, beautiful, or and I struggle for the word, word actually, there is something alluring about a video game. Um, and I, I, I question whether it is necessarily a siren-like or Lotus Eater-like or fetishizing um, uh, activity by necessity. I think that is what it is when it is negative. But, but there's something, there is a joy that I get in being in the Final Fantasy world. Sort of like um, this most recent HBO show, Westworld, where the, um, the sort of main antagonist Black Hat character wants to, um, and his name was originally William, for those of you who've played, seen through the second uh, season, uh, he, he, what he loves about Westworld is that everything is meaningful and that there is narrative tied to each moment in that, unlike in what he calls the real world. And so I guess what I'm circling around are, is a question here is, A, is, is that part of what you appreciate about being in this game, even when you're not necessarily pursuing a, mer a narrative? Unlike um, with um, the person we spoke to last week, Mr. or Dr. Howerlock, uh, like Powervac, um, he was talking about like in the Bethesda games, like the Elder Scroll Scrolls games, which are uh, just open world, and you can walk around and enjoy that. And I recall enjoying that too. But part of the sort of uh, more particular RPG drama that Square puts out is that most of the time you're doing something, and um, not quite to the extent that you have in, say, Majora's Mask, Link, or, or Zelda, where you actually are on the clock. You do have a clock ticking off here, but if it takes you seven days to do whatever, it doesn't matter. Meteor won't hit. Um, that's not how this game works. But um, do you just enjoy being in the game and being with the characters, even though now as an adult you understand that, of course, they're like characters who have dialogue written for them by other people? Um, or is that a reductive way of seeing them? And... Um, is there more to the game than simply getting sort of like those dopamine hits from completing tasks? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there is something to be said for just experiencing the game world and, you know, the simple kind of procedures of, of interacting and interfacing with it, um, you know, flying around uh, in the airship or, or running around on a chocobo or whatever it might be on the world map in particular is just like, yeah, really satisfying somehow. Um, the part of that is the music, which is always kind of there in the background yes. um, as accompaniment and as kind of this mood that it shapes for you. Um, part of that obviously is like sense memories of, of doing this, you know, 10 and 20 years ago or whatever it was uh, when, you know, you're, younger person yourself right so it sort of takes you back to to that world in a sense um and and at the same time you know the the way that you sort of saw the world when you were that age um is kind of represented in the game you know the colors are brighter the uh distinction between good and evil are sharper um the clarity of your purpose is is evident uh and, and interesting, you know, in the ways that it becomes uh, delineated for you in the story. And, and everything that you do progresses the story, yeah. Um, even if you don't do anything, uh, your character, you know, except walk around, your characters are gonna get stronger little by little, and, and that's gonna help you down the line um, to, to defeat boss enemies and progress the story, you know? So there, there's kind of, um, a sense in which you are immersed in the time frame of the game, like like the distinction you make with Majora's Mask is very interesting because because their time flows uh, in a way that's sort of like real life. Um, no matter what you're doing, time is ticking, right? In this game, it's it's sort of the opposite. Um, only when you do things does time in the game move forward. Right. Um, the dramatic example of that being, you know, at this at this turn of disc two to disc three, you have some storyline that happens because you beat a certain boss or whatever. You you actually see time go from one day to another, and and you know that very significant night that Cloud and Tifa spend together, um, which is kind of endlessly uh, hilarious and poignant to to think about. Um, 
kind of kind of at the same time but but anyway yeah like you said you know no matter how many times you fly around the world meteor is really no closer to hitting until you go and and actually progress the story so to speak well so what do you think about um that idea that the world does not change around you unless you progress the narrative yourself do you think that that is a better representation of how time actually passed for humans, that it's not so much that we exist in simply physical space, that we exist in sort of meaningful space. And, and I would connect to that question, the notion of, say, being in the desert for, uh, from Exodus, sort of those times uh, that pass that take lots of time, also sort of Beowulf, if you read that story, the times of peace that take so much time but only occupy a half page in the story. What do you, what do you see to what the game is portraying there about actual human life, primary world life, as Miss Sarah Miller would say it. Um, do, you, do you think that that sense of progress does not come simply through time? Obviously, we age and die, and, that, and regardless of what we do, that will happen, and sometimes that will happen much faster because of what we fail to do. But um, do, you, do you see, I mean, do you even see us as humans as part of a grand narrative and that insofar as we sort of link in with that and help progress it, we live a meaningful life and see uh, sort of a change in the world because of that. Do we have to make the changes in the world that we see? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot to that. Um, you reference Beowulf and, and as you're talking and the Exodus story, the, the sort of desert, um, the, the waste, I, I was thinking back to your, your Odysseus example from the start. You know, he's, yes. he's stuck on this island. He's not moving. In a sense, time isn't passing for him, right? Um, and he's been uh, practically forgotten by the, by the quote-unquote real world, you know. Um, and, and I think that the, uh, the sense in which um, our you know, grandest narrative possible, you know, that, that in which, in terms of which our, our life has meaning, some internal sense, you know, has eternal value or something, that would seem to suggest that it is through your actions, possibly your beliefs behind them, um, that, that your sort of eternal uh, story uh, takes shape you know that that which is going to be beyond time or transcend time as we experience it that that is going to take shape in the way that you know time flows within these kinds of stories based on things that you do to progress the story uh, I, that might be like a little bit of a stretch and it'd be a little hard i think to to parse out ex exactly in what sense you know art is imitating life or art is imitating the afterlife or whatever <laughs> there um but i kind of feel like that's how dreams are too you know and and many times playing a game has this kind of immersive quality that that a dream might have too or or you know listening to a story um where you have this this pause in the narrative and you drop through the layers uh into a whole other story i think ava braun writes about this with respect to Odysseus's scar, right? Where uh, it's a thing that um, uh, mimesis, that, that great text uh, about, uh, you know, criticism. I think it's Auerbach who talks about it there. The same image of, of the scar that just like, it just plummets you through the sort of surface level of time into this kind of mythic storytelling time where things matter because they happen, you know, and not because you're sort of sitting there and, and time is passing. It's like stuff means something. Um, that, that seems to be the power of, of art and poetry and, and dreams and religions too. So. so what do you see as the relationship between meaning and narrative then? Is it sort of like how notes take on importance on, in a measure and how they relate to each other and what the the fullness of the composition sounds like um, with them all placed together, all the notes and all the measures, of course. Um, what, what do you see the connection between meaning and narrative as? I, yeah, I think that that's a good, a good example to give there because music 
insofar as it is uh, sounds, you know, air moving against our eardrums, it doesn't seem to have meaning the way that a, a story or a play, a drama, you know, has meaning um, where it's articulated in speech, right? And yet our experience of it is that it definitely does mean something. And so you must, it must have something to do with, with relationships, with relations between things and between them and us, you know, sort of our perception of them, our, our imputation of significance to things um, seems to matter quite a bit in this whole discussion. I, I do think that uh, the music combined with the story, combined with us as the player, um, that whole relation among those things uh, is, is a big part of what contributes to making video games such interesting carriers and, or sort of generators or whatever reflectors of meaning um, because they, they do sort of multiply these, these various relationships and you get to see some interesting things happen where, you know, two people can play the same game and one of them can get, you know, a, a totally different um, kind of experience out of it than the other, you know, um, and the same thing happens to an extent with, with music or other kinds of art, right? Where, you know, one person really loves one kind of music and another person can't stand it and it does nothing for them. You know, it, it doesn't speak to them as we say. So yeah, I, I do think that all sorts of, of relationships um, are sort of standpoint with respect to things matters a great deal. Um, and that goes to sort of history as well, right? Like what we sort of know of history and where we are in history is going to impact us quite a bit as we approach books. And, um, you know, not to say that it determines it, but, but it does, it does have an effect on it. Well, so that makes me sort of want to um, tether back to the point I made about sort of enjoying the experience of being in a simplified or meaningful world. Is that what we love about side quests? And wh why is it that we do side quests? Because obviously there's no economic value to it. There is an economic value within the microcosm of the game itself. Like you might get some new material or experience or acquire a new character. But obviously the, if the opportunity cost is between like say doing a side quest in this simplified video game world and going to like say exercise or eat a good meal um, or you know even develop a, a human relationship, which of course, you know, you can do that in sort of online games to some extent, um, but but not in this sort of game, unless you're doing what we're doing and playing it alongside each other, which is interesting. But what is what is it about, what is the relationship between a side quest and narrative and meaning that makes side quests enjoyable um, and meaningful as well? I mean, I think, that, well, I think that there's a few sort of aspects to it. Well, on the one hand, there's simply the desire to like win, you know, and like complete, right. complete every task that's set before you. And that's pretty powerful for, for particularly for some people. Um, I, I wasn't always a, a big completionist, but I was always the kind of person who wanted to know more of the story. And I think that's something that side quests also do. They, they sketch in more of that sort of overt narrative. And, and make it more complicated and make it more nuanced and interesting. And that was always sort of irresistible to me, you know, as somebody who just loved to kind of dig into the, the characters and, and the stories. And, you know, and that was kind of how I approached video games. But, um, but on the other hand, side quests are just like, there's also that element of just like, what's going to happen next? They're sort of like, loosely connected to the rest of the game, but you sort of never know um, what else could be there, like what could appear over the next horizon. There, there's this kind of novelty to it, um, which is pretty fascinating. Um, so, so the kind of person who likes completing things, the kind of person who likes stories, the kind of person who likes novelty, they, they sort of have a lot of different ways in which they, they can appeal. Um, I, I think, you know, they also just <laughs> they do have a kind of economic value, so to speak, because they, they lengthen or they extend the life of the game itself, right? The time you're going to spend playing it, the likelihood that you're going to go and talk to somebody else about it and try to figure something out, you know, and that, that's always good for the, the game developer. So there's that. 
And I do certainly have that feeling now that you, you've completed the two side quests that I need to complete before the next, uh, our next side quest. It's here, um, the Defeat of Ultimate Weapon, and I believe one other one, I'm not sure what it revolved around, but I, I look forward to asking you about that. But there, it is as if I am using the side quest now, and this is what I did when I first played the game. I made it all the way to disc three, and then I thought, oh my goodness, there's so many things left to do that I haven't done. And I want to make sure that I crush Sephiroth because I have a personal sort of vendetta, not only in the game, but also I was so inspired or awestruck by him outside of the game that I really wanted my character to destroy him. But it, there's this feeling that with the game almost over, it's an artificial way of sort of keeping the game alive, like extending the life of the game, extending the time that we have to discuss this game in order to reveal something additional to us. So I, so I guess I wanted to ask whether... A, that's already me giving into nostalgia, um, ex sort of artificially extending the life of the game by pursuing side quests rather than the overarching narrative. And, but also, what is it that you think makes us interested in non-real fictional characters um, so much so, or in a non-real non fictional world like uh, the world that I, I believe doesn't even have a name, though usually it's called Gaia in Final Fantasy worlds. Uh, there's Gaia versus Terra in Final Fantasy IX, and I think in some of the earlier ones. I think Final Fantasy VI names the world Gaia as well, which is, of course, from the Greek Gi Gaia, which means Earth and is the original consort to Uranus, heaven, uh, the father of Kronos, who is himself father of Zeus. But what, I mean, is it something about the game? Is it something about us that makes us... Uh, want want this sort of artificial gold is it fool's gold or is it is it golden information about reality that we are deciphering from a secondary world or or information about ourselves that we get from these artificial or fictional characters i guess i'm trying to really dig deep into what is it about stories about things we know do not have direct correlates in the world that makes them interesting to us or or is there but it's different from say a non-fictional work So I think there is a kind of alchemy there, you know, and uh, this thing which on the one hand is just a made up sort of fiction. On the other hand, when you sort of invest it with time and attention can can take on a, a an actual kind of importance um, because it, yeah, it does sort of convey a lot of mythic um, material in a fun and compelling way. Um, it brings new life to really old and maybe sort of um, archaic, right, themes. Um, if you're sort of looking at the this point in the game in particular, right, you've got the the weapons themselves sort of embody that, like that, that earth power or whatever, right? Um, which is also sort of divine because it's so grand and so terrifying. Um, and, and when you defeat ultimate weapon or ultimate weapon, I forget which, which one he's called. He, so he crashes into the ground, uh, forms this huge crater and that allows you to reach a place that's called the ancient forest. Right. And so that, that's the other sort of like little side quest here, um, which I mean, I think, sort of, it's like a lost world kind of place. It's where um, ancient plants and animals have been sort of isolated from the rest of the world. Uh, and and that, that sense of, of ancient tree, right, has been a big theme throughout the game, you know, ever since we first hear the word. Um, and Eris, you know, realizes that she, she is one of these ancients, right? Um, that that sort of like gets this little echo here um, in the story. So like on the one hand, it's just a way to get Cloud's ultimate weapon and to find another cool triple materia growth weapon in there and some other good ar armor and materia and stuff. On the other hand, you know, it has these kind of valences, uh, these echoes of of really, I, I think pretty pretty profound um, like mythic. Um, or or scientific even um, sort of um, 
thoughts and, 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 and information. Yeah. Which, which might well be, um, be revealed as gold. And so that just makes me think because you were talking about the mythological aspects of this game, as well as the fact that we are coming to the grand finale and we're fighting enemies called Ultima weapon, receiving our ultimate weapons. We, um, we are of course attempting to save the world and these seem to be about the most epic motifs possible while also taking revenge for our now dead friend Ares. Um, you know, things are deeply personal as well as sort of objectively meaningful, which must make for quite the meaningful moments for Cloud. And yet, all, you know, all the, all the characters at the beginning of Disc 3 have to decide whether they, they just want to give up too, which, which is an interesting way of looking at the world. But it, it makes me want to ask this question, which was very poignant to me at the end of Final Fantasy VIII as well. The game ends ostensibly if we win, and we're still fairly young people. You know, Cloud is, I think, something like 21 in this game. Not particularly old. I think he was 16 when he tried to join Soldier, and it's been five years since then. Tifa's about the same age. Barrett, Barrett and Sid, I think, are the oldest characters, and Barrett's some like 35, just a little bit older than we are now. And what... What does it mean that the narrative doesn't comprise the entirety of the life of the characters, that we only have this snapshot into them? Does that tell us something about what we value uh, as humans? Does that tell us something about how a human life is lived? Does that say something about how precious stories are and the uh, potential to live them out, even though, you know, of course, terrible things can happen during them, like, you know, your your love interest Aries, a beautiful soul dying. Yeah, yeah. The the sense in which you know, like the original drama, Aristotle talks about like the unities of of time and place, right? Being being limited um, much much more so, like to to a day or, or whatever um, in the life of the characters. Whereas here we see you know a certain amount of time pass, but but yeah, certainly not like a lifetime or something like that um instead we sort of see this this like crucial uh turning point in history which is which is held up for us right because that's that's what sort of generates the most um storytelling weight or something like that and and when you get to this point in the game when where where you know the story is almost over um there there is a kind of like i don't know uh sense of of pulling back from that like i never beat a lot of video games i would get to the very end and then i would just stop playing um yes I, I yes yeah i did that with xeno gears yeah yeah that, yeah yeah and that's i think i think that's sort of what the game is maybe talking about a little there where it sends the characters home you know to decide if they really want to press on um i think the player undergoes a certain amount of that that feeling as well uh, and and to some extent, like we in our lifetimes, I, I think there are sort of critical moments which which stand out a lot more, which are more story-like or or more charged with with this a sort of sense of narrative weight or something like that. But but on the other hand, you know the the appeal I think of of getting to see the the full story you know is is also very powerful like you want to see what happens you want to see how this ends um you, you don't mind so much if you don't see you know the character's full lifetime pass before you because what you're seeing is you know the life of the the story um instead and and it's sort of i think it's it's completion um is going to be really important uh, for like setting the boundaries, right? Like you have to have boundaries and rules in, in any game, right? Well, this is like the end of the story sets, sets the boundaries to the kinds of thing that that story is concerned with. Um, because, you know, you can't, I think you can't just lob, lob everything together. Um, and I, that might be part of why, you know, we play them. We, we sort of, we never get to this see ourselves or our full life in in one coherent 
um, like synoptic view, right? Because we're sort of stuck in it. <laughs> but but with the story, with a game, whatever, you know, we can we can see it whole if we get to the end. Okay, well then that makes me want to ask um, probably my biggest question here, which is what is the problem with artificially extending the game on in order to sort of sort of cling on to something that one loves without letting it end, like somebody who's unwilling to break up at the end of a relationship or to to let go at the end of a university career. I mean, I, I, I did myself get excused from university in my junior year for some time. Um, and I wonder to what extent that that comes from the same sort of personality flaw as um, my never def- uh, beating Xenogears, which perhaps we'll play next. We really need to discuss whether we're going to go to the Zelda route or stay with the PlayStation. I think that's very interesting. But what what then is the value of sort of letting the dead bury the dead and putting things to rest and finishing one story? Is it that we get to move on to the next story and see um, in, a, in more of its glory the great chain of being that is maintained by narratives old and new? Um, what is the value, what is it that we are missing that is even more important than continuing to stay in one world that we get from finishing the narrative in one and moving on to the next one? What is the value of moving on, Wes? Yeah, no, just to pick up, I mean, I think that's a really good question. To pick up on the the tangent there, um, kind of buried in there, uh, I, I do think we should play um Majora's Mask or uh Ocarina of Time next just for a a different kind of game you know sure. um but but uh but I do yeah I do also want to play Xeno Gears at some point for sure uh and talk about it I to, to the to the bigger point um I mean I think they're related right though yeah I think you do have to you have to let things go um because as I said like Insofar as you're participating in them, they aren't whole. They they aren't quite um, complete, and that's, I guess, the nature of of our participation in things is to kind of um, interfere with them and and um, complicate them, you know. And if if what you want is to get to do that then that's an option, I guess. Like you can sort of endlessly tinker with something and and endlessly uh, repair or, or add on to it or, or whatever it might be, right? But but when you do that, the thing itself uh, never gets to, you know, have its own kind of um, end. It doesn't have its own like boundary or its own purpose in a way either. Um, it's always kind of stuck uh, and you're stuck in it too. So. I think, you know, that that's a, a question that's very difficult to answer in kind of an ultimate sense, because like I say, we we're sort of stuck in the world and we don't get to see the world from outside and as much as we might try to imagine what that would be like. But we do in terms of, of games and stories and, and art, right? Like we can, you know, step outside of them. We can completely forget about them or ignore them if we choose or, you know, or if that's just the way it goes. Um, and they get to have sort of their own their own being, um, which is, I, I think, like that that kind of integrity of the thing is a big part of it. Um, to get to sort of like I don't know, there's a a real enjoyment that I get uh, at at thinking about uh, like concerts that I've been to, you know, or books that that I look at around my bookshelves here. Like they're just kind of sitting there. And I could pick them up and, and read them, you know, or I could go and listen to that that music again. But um, but in some way, it's it's like it's it's its own thing, right? It's it's whole, it's complete, but it's also um, lodged in in my experience, you know, and and has contributed to the the work in progress that I am. So um, I I feel like there's there's definitely something to be said for for both sides, but there's I think more to be said for for just putting the the finishing touch on a on a work on a game and and getting to kind of um let it go. Yeah, and that makes me want I mean that makes me think that artificially extending anything is to some extent evil just because of the opportunity cost one misses. One one 
misses the unity of the experience. One never completes the experience. And thus, you know, if it's, you know, not breaking up when one should or getting back together, one never experiences the fullness of losing somebody, right? Or even if you never put to bed the idea of somebody and always keep their memory alive in a ghost-like fashion, you never have the experience of really putting them to rest, as Cloud mentions, on the high wind when he gets back, uh, when he's talking to Barrett about his motivations, and Barrett is talking about his motivations, and they're really sharing quite quite a beautiful moment, right? Barrett is saying, you know, I know I wanted to save the planet and all, but really I wanted to get revenge on Shinra for what they did to my city, and I know that I, you know, I killed a lot of people, and I didn't go about it in the right way, and where Cloud is also leveling with him, and I like that expression, leveling with him, saying, you know, I, I said I wanted to save the world from Sephiroth, but really I had a personal score to settle with Sephiroth, um, you know, for attacking Tifa, who, you know, I was so attracted to when I was young and burning down my city, obviously. It's like, I have an emotional attachment to this. I have a real attachment to this. And that just makes me connect to the idea of Limbo and Dante's Inferno. The four epic poets who are there, Luke and Horace, who's technically a satirist or a satirist, um, Virgil, Homer, and then later Dante, and sort of what, why is it that these poets who tell these great stories are in limbo? And, you know, limbo is a word we've used before, like our limbic system or like something liminal. It's something on the boundary of something else. So it's the boundary zone of hell. So it's not really hell yet, but it's definitely not heaven. It's a place of no progress. And so I wonder to what extent the idea that Dante is putting forward there between the pagan tradition and the Christian tradition is something like, what we figured out around, you know, 33, 34 BCE or, you know, around 70 or excuse me, uh, AD CE or 70 CE or so when many of the gospels started to be written, they're usually um, timed around that time, is that you can't just always be retelling the same story or that, or that a, tr a true story or a good story or the story of humans is a story of making um, some sort of progress in the narrative. I'm, I'm circling around this and it's very vague to me right now. So I'm hoping you can see something there. I wonder, I, I wonder if that's also the difference between trying to hang on to something that you should finish and so, sort of moving forward and having perhaps, perhaps the idea is that without moving forward, you show that you lack faith or hope in the future, or you fail to produce the next step in a narrative that would I don't know. I don't know. What do you see, Wes? I, it's very unclear to me at this point. Yeah, I think the, the example of the kind of form, formulation or whatever of, of the Gospels as like coherent texts is a really interesting one. Um, you know, presumably those stories were being passed around as, as oral accounts for many years. Um, presumably they shifted around a bit, uh, they accrued certain things, they might have even lost certain things, who knows. Um, but like, then that, that text gets kind of written down at a certain point and, and finished, right, and, and codified. Um, and it's a story about sort of like the, the culmination of, of divine history or something, right? Like, it, it's, it sets a, a seal. Um, I think that's the, the term that, um, it, Islam uses, right, of Muhammad. He's the seal on the prophets. So they have the same kind of notion, right? Like, this is the culmination. This is the, the, the moment when the divine sort of interacts with the, the world, um, the world of history of, of mundane time or something, you know? And, like, once you have that kind of story, things become, I guess, a lot clearer for you. Um, for us, as people, you know, thousands of years later, um, things are a little more complicated again, right? History has kept going on and uh, the end doesn't seem to be in sight. But, but on the other hand, right, insofar as we can sort of sit with and just like delve into that, that story, um, whatever the, the source of it might be, um, on its own terms as a whole, it does have a kind of perfection, right? And um, people, you know, really live their lives according to those stories still to this day. Uh, there's obviously a lot of negative consequences that go with like 
a dogmatic interpretation of of certain stories or of history itself or whatever you know there's endless ways that that can go wrong but there's also at least some possibility that it can um that it can go right you know to to sort of stake yourself on um your your name or your your life on a on a truth that you say is like definitely true <laughs> um there there's incredible uh good that can come from that too um that you know that's uh a hard thing to connect back to um this like you know video game maybe but um but it it does seem like the game is is reaching for something like that you know um some sense of grandeur and of uh of importance and significance like we'll have to see um I know this was one of your big questions, like how how the game is going to live up to the epic tradition and all this mythological and religious kind of weight that it's it's kind of putting on itself. Um, uh, but but I think we're we're getting within sight of of that that uh, that end here. Yeah, and I think it just I a thought that occurred to me while you were speaking is that you know a story can't be all things at all times it can only insofar as it's a good story and this is again an aristotelian point is it it makes a coherent point um i i forget whether he says that specifically about epic um which or or drama i think he says that about drama because epic is by its nature rather episodic and so i guess we can we can question whether this is a drama or an epic by aristotelian standards at some point um but um but it seems like what makes a story best, and this is something that Sephiroth sort of misses out on, is not artificially extending itself throughout time eternally in order to acquire all things to itself, but to make a point, a unique point, to, to, to be a meaningful instance in time that people can relate to. And that insofar as someone's life partakes of that sort of narrative force of being something interesting and informative and meaningful within time, that that's what makes you know a life purpose filled as well. So it's almost as if that's a major difference between an antagonist, typically defined like a Lucifer or a Sephiroth, who tries to be more than they are, and a protagonist who tries to play their role extremely well. And you know, honestly, that does seem like a humbler goal, also a more realistic goal, and also ultimately a more helpful goal if the beings that are going to be reading your story and connecting to you are other sentient humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that that sense of um, posterity, right, of of passing on that uh, that story, that that's another really important element of of getting to the end of it, right? You can't very well pass on something that you don't um, know the end of yourself, right? At least in some sense, you you got to have some sense of at least where it's where it's heading uh, to to pass it on and to allow for the next. Um, you know, audience or whatever the next to teller to uh, to to add their their piece to it and add their contribution and then uh, that that transmission. I mean, as teachers, that's that's really important to us. I think. Yeah, you can't have it all, but perhaps you can have something. So, okay, final question, easy question here. Potentially, you always tricky and always a snake in the grass when somebody says something's easy. Um, Majora's Mask or Ocarina of Time, and why? I would prefer, I think, uh, Majora's Mask. I, I think it's got a little bit um, deeper, kind of less conventional uh, story to it, which might be interesting to talk about. Um, partly, one of my good friends, Ben, uh, has wanted to, um, you know, write about, talk about that game for a long time. So I, I'm, I'm trying to get him to participate uh in in that endeavor with us as well um i don't know if he'll have time or maybe just a little bit but that's there there's a bit of a selfish motive there for me as well but um but yeah i would i would say um jorah's mask it also thematically uh connects very well to final fantasy 7 i mean it too does have a giant meteor in the sky that's going to come down and kill everybody that we have to save everybody from though with that different yeah. mode of playing it's so 
you know, it's like we gotta we've gotta keep saving the world, Wes. Somebody's got to. Yes. Yes, we sure we sure do. And we all do, you know. That's um that is everybody's job these days. Right. Right. Well, um, I think that's a, that's about good from me on my end. Um, what would you like to do by next time? Should we get into the Northern Crater? Should we Ooh. the game? Should I race a chocobo? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, see what you, what you get around to doing um, with the, I know you're busy and have a lot of stuff going on, but like, I think some of the side quests would be fun to do. Um, at least give it one more week here and then, Maybe after that we can see about going on into the northern crater and and the final boss battles and whatnot. Okay, well that is the that is the name of the show. That is the name of the segment, and so that that should be the name of the game. That should be what I pursue coming up here. So I'm looking forward to that. I I think I'll I'll at least beat that ultimate weapon or ultimate weapon, whatever he's called. Um, go into that ancient forest and then see if I have time to go into yet another crater and meet that angelic sephiroth one last time all right on i'm gonna be trying to do some of the battle square that's the big side quest that's left for me to do and that that one has always been such a frustrating one for me so i'll see if i can have luck with me on this this week those elements of chance that get involved they're very frustrating Uh, regardless of how powerful you become this time around i don't even have things like four times cut or W summon or nice of the round. It's very interesting in some respects, how much more I've gotten from this game, bringing so much more to it and how much less I've involved myself in the game as well. Um, but I suppose I've involved myself in differing ways. Um, perhaps that's the difference between seminar with young people and seminar with older people. You, you bring more to the text and thus get more out of it. The more food you bring to the table, the more there's at the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that will be quite the feast then next week. Um, looking looking forward to it. I'm already hungry. <laughs> Same. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye.